us with great joy and great responsibility that I ask you this morning to open the infallible record of the Word of God to the Gospel of Matthew, where we have been for some time now, and we will continue to be as we work our way through this glorious gospel and learn much about our sovereign King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, I would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 11. And in a few minutes, we will be looking at verses 25 through 30. But as we prepare our minds for the text that the Lord has before us this morning, might I draw your attention to a few thoughts with respect to the culture in which we find ourselves. And the culture of the world today, especially the so-called spiritual world or the religious world, it doesn't take you long to realize that people have grossly distorted the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most people see him only in his humiliation. Most people see him the way he was when he came the first time. They don't see him as he is today, seated at the right hand of the Father. And they certainly don't see him as the coming Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Most people see him like many pictures. A baby that is helplessly draped across his mother's Lap, Or they see him as some effeminate preacher with long hair and a robe and he's passively preaching the virtues of kindness and humility. For many people, Jesus is merely a symbol of love. He is an icon of virtue. He is not the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ has been reduced in most Circles to represent nothing more than the power of the human spirit or to demonstrate somehow man's potential to love and to sacrifice for fellow man. Many people look at Christ and they merely see the need for religious freedom and the importance of putting down religious tyranny and bigotry. One professor of theology at Vanderbilt University said, and I quote, Jesus is a model of nonviolent resistance and the cross is a symbol of dying to self. Dear friends, he is far more than that. And the gospel of Christ and the cross is far more than that. People today are terrified to mention the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in public circles. You'll notice even in our political arena, if you go to a governor's prayer breakfast or wherever you go, unless you have some people asked to pray who would mention it, most people will never mention the name Jesus. Oh, they'll mention the word God, but that leaves it wide open for God as you think he or she might be. We see this, for example, in the movie that came out not too long ago. The Passion of the Christ, and by the way, that is on, as, as many of our sermons are, on sermonaudio.com. That, by the way, has been the most listened to message around the world 
for people that listen to the messages here at Calvary Bible Church. So you can go there and hear more about this. But you may recall the film director, Mel Gibson, in my estimation, completely missed the purpose of the incarnation and the atonement. And this is demonstrated by his statement where he explained why he did the film. And here's what he said, and I quote, I went to the wounds of Christ to cure my wounds. My wounds were healed by his wounds, and I had to tell the story of those wounds. But Jesus, dear friends, did not come to heal our emotional and psychological wounds. He was obedient to the Father, and he came to give his life a ransom for many. Because of God's holy justice, because God's anger is kindled against sinners, because his holy law has been violated, and because every sin must be punished, and because his wrath had to be appeased, it had to be placated, Jesus came as the propitiation for our sins. This is fundamental to the Christian faith. In 1 John 4.10 we read, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. To propitiate means to satisfy or to placate or to appease. It's so sad today that very few people have any understanding as to why only a man that is fully God and fully human, in other words, without a sin nature, could satisfy the wrath of God. And certainly people could look at the movie like The Passion of Christ and never understand any of that. There's no understanding in the hearts of most people that according to Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There's no understanding that Jesus said, I am the way, meaning the only way, and the truth, the only truth, and the life, the only life, and that no one comes to the Father but through me. No one would look at that movie or hear most of what is preached and taught today and understand that Christianity, true Christianity, mixes with absolutely nothing. No other religion. There's no understanding in the hearts of most people that Jesus came first to be judged, but that he's coming again to be the judge. That he came first as a lamb, but he's coming again as a lion. In power and in great glory, he will come again and wage war upon all who refuse to worship him as Lord and Savior. Likewise, the majesty and excellency of Christ has been eviscerated for the most part in contemporary evangelicalism. We certainly see this in the gospel light apostasy of modern church growth movements where people are considered more deprived than depraved, where repentance has been reduced, or I should say replaced, with recovery, and where preaching has become soft so as not to offend anyone. This is certainly well illustrated in a very popular and I believe a very dangerous movement today in contemporary circles, a movement called the Purpose Driven Church. The purpose driven life, kind of the latest contemporary Christian fad that is sweeping the world where when you read it, you will see certainly some very true things as every heresy, every heresy has major elements of truth in it. But for the most part, God in this particular movement is painted with a cosmic smiley face 
and people are herded through the wide gate of salvation and down the broad way of self-indulgent Christianity that leads to destruction. And of course, our Lord reminded us in Matthew 7:13 that many there will be that will enter through that way. In this particular movement, people are invited to, and I quote, quietly whisper the prayer that will change your eternity. And here it is. Jesus, I believe in you and I receive you. Dear friends, believe in what? And when you believe in whatever it is, what is it that you're going to receive? The pastor that leads this movement, a pastor, Rick Warren, goes on to say, and I quote, if you sincerely meant that prayer, congratulations. Welcome to the family of God. You are now ready to discover and start living God's purpose for your life. And sadly, thousands of small groups use the particular study guide that these dear people put out and a teaching video that goes along with it for what's called 40 days of purpose. I received it all here and I rejected it after studying the material. That's why we will not be doing that here, as most churches unfortunately are. And one of the reasons is because of the very things I'm telling you about here. In that particular video, 40 Days of Purpose, people are led in a slightly longer prayer, and there they will hear the pastor speak these words, and I quote, Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? If you aren't sure of this, I'd like the privilege of leading you in a prayer to settle the issue. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to pray a prayer, and you can follow it silently in your mind. And here's the prayer. Dear God, I want to know your purpose for my life. I don't want to waste the rest of my life on the wrong things. Today, I want to take the first step in preparing for eternity by getting to know you, Jesus Christ. I don't understand it at all, but as much as I know how, I want to open my life to you. I ask you to come into my life and make yourself real to me. Use this series to help me know what you made me for. Thank you. Amen. And then they go on to say, if you've just prayed that prayer for the very first time, I congratulate you. You've just become a part of the family of God. Dear friends, if you've been here over the last several months, you have heard the Lord's invitation and how radically different it is as people agonize to squeeze through the narrow gate of salvation. Beloved, this is not the gospel. There is no mention of the holiness of God. There is no mention or no understanding of the reality that people have violated God's law. There's nothing that exposes people to their utter sinfulness and their need to be their need to be reconciled to a holy God. No mention of repentance or of confession or of the cross. Wherein is the gospel apart from the cross? Scripture clearly states that saving faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And yet none of the scriptures that explain the gospel are ever mentioned in their very first lesson. None of them. And as a result, thousands of biblically illiterate people in need of salvation are joining these groups. I understand they're selling about a million copies per week. They're praying the superficial prayer without any understanding of the holiness of God, of their own sinfulness, of the purpose of the cross. 
And certainly they have no grasp of the Savior. In fact, the concept of salvation isn't even included in the first lesson. Instead, the focus of the lesson would suggest that we are saved from a life without purpose, not from the bondage of our sin and from an eternal hell. But dear friends, we see something very different as we examine the words of Jesus this morning. And in today's text, we will discover four elements of the penitent heart. We will see four crucial components for which Jesus gives praise to the Father and thus praise for the penitent heart. The four indispensable elements that produce genuine saving faith are, and I'll give them to you and we'll elaborate on them, and they all begin with R. We must have revelation. There must be reliance, repentance, and resignation. Revelation, reliance, repentance, and resignation. Now, in order to understand this, of course, let's begin by looking at the Word of God, and we will unpack what is here to understand these great truths. Beginning in verse 25, our Lord says, At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and didst reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. The context here is that Jesus' fame now has swept all across the land of Israel. His miracles have been seen by thousands and thousands of people. There's hardly any disease in the land of Palestine by now. Yet many people remain indifferent, even hostile to his claim to deity, his claim to be Messiah. And they have resented his bold proclamation of the gospel, that people are sinners and that their self-righteous acts will never allow them entrance into the kingdom of God. He has sent out his 12 apostles as well as his 70 missionaries, two by two, as you read in Luke 10. And there has been enormous opportunity for people all across the land to believe and to be saved. And yet most continue to refuse the gospel. And so God pronounces judgments upon them and the hostilities now begin to mount in the life and ministry of our Lord. But divine judgment, dear friends, is always restrained by grace. Jesus' strong denunciation is always accompanied by tender invitation. The long-suffering and gentle Savior never curses without also offering a way of escape. And here in this text, the Holy Spirit allows us to enter into the heart of the Savior as we hear from his own lips his praise and his gratitude for the Father's demonstration of mercy as the 70 now have returned to the Lord, giving testimony that even the demons are subject to them in Jesus' name and that people are coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. 
And now we pick it up in verse 25. At that time, in other words, after hearing this testimony, Jesus answered and said, by the way, here is the Hebrew idiom that means to speak out publicly. He's speaking out loudly here and he says, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and didst reveal them to babes. And here, dear friends, we are introduced to the first indispensable component of salvation. By the way, we read more of this as we look down in verse 27. He says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. In other words, all authority and power in in, in heaven and earth are are given to the preexistent Jesus, the Son of God, the second member of the triune Godhead. And he says, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So there's a further explanation of this divine revelation that is crucial for one to be saved. Dear friends, no one has ever entered the kingdom of God apart from acknowledging that God the Father is indeed Lord of heaven and earth. This is divine revelation that is given to anyone that has a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. People that truly know Christ understand that indeed the Lord Jesus is is sovereign and that God the Father is the omnipotent ruler of the universe, that they are three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They understand that none of the decisions of the triune Godhead can be thwarted. And certainly God reveals to his elect that he is God and that they are not This is the beginning of our understanding of who Christ is. And those that truly know and love Christ will rejoice in this foundational truth. They will not bristle against it. So Jesus gives praise to the Father for this marvelous gift of spiritual insight. And notice that it has been given not to the wise and the intelligent. In other words, not to those who are wise in their own eyes. Those who are somehow blinded by the pride of their own self-righteousness. And many of the people to whom Jesus was addressing were, were, were Jews that were trying to earn their way to heaven, as we'll understand more in a moment. He is not going to reveal himself to those people who are convinced that they are somehow able to make themselves acceptable to God. Because of some man-made doctrine or religious system. In fact, the Lord will hide His revelation from people whose hearts are so filled with unbelief and rebellion. Some people will say, oh, well, you know, I don't think that's fair that God reveals to some and he doesn't to others. Oh, dear friends, please hear me. Who are you to stand in judgment of the almighty, the Lord of heaven and earth? He can and he will do what he pleases, whether we understand it or agree with it or comprehend it or not. Dear friends, what is fair is whatever God does. In fact, in the Hebrew language, the term justice is basically defined as whatever God does. And justice will be given to all according to the way God sees it. Beloved, frankly, the glorious doctrines of God are all beyond our ability to fathom and to ever question the integrity of God is a supreme blasphemy. Remember the words of Abraham in Genesis 18 and verse 25, where we read, shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? 
And of course, he will. So Jesus rejoices in the father's revelation of spiritual truths that he gives to the humble. For apart from revelation, man would never understand God. He would never come to faith in Christ because certainly the wisdom of man is hopelessly flawed. Just look at our American culture and you will see the results of the wisdom of man. And likewise, the religious systems that man concocts are always, always flawed, always biased in our own favor. Ridiculous systems of human works designed to somehow earn our way to heaven and obligate God to save us because of our own merits. And we see this in them, the myriad of bizarre isms that we have in our world today. Not too long ago, you may recall, people were committing suicide in order to somehow get on board the Hale-Bopp Comet. People blow themselves up today for a God that doesn't exist named Allah so that they can enjoy 70 virgins. Today, there are one billion people in the world that are Islamic. There are another one billion that are Hindus who worship millions of deities. There are another three quarter of a billion Buddhists who are forever searching for Nibbana, that state of tranquility, that state of of ultimate indifference. There are another one billion plus people in the world that are a part of some form of apostate Christianity, such things as Roman Catholicism and Anglicanism and Unitarianism and Seventh-day Adventism, all of the liberalism and the various cults that are even further out on the fringes, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and so on. There's another 16 million people that are a part of apostate Judaism. Some of them are conservative Jews, some of them Orthodox Jews, many of them liberal Jews. By the way, this should not surprise us. Because the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 5, 19, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Dear friends, there are millions of hypocrites, millions of apostates all, that are out there, all spinning their own form of spirituality, all with their own unique take on truth. Hypocrites and liars, the Word of God says, that are seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Receiving revelation from deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, according to 1 Timothy 4.1. In fact, Jude 8 tells us more about these false teachers, that they are dreamers. And the Greek term for dreamer literally gives us the idea that they receive revelation from their own delusional imaginations combined with demonic emissaries, demonic spirits that teach them all of these heretical things. And from them, they make millions and millions of dollars, but not so with those whom God has chosen to reveal himself. According to first Corinthians chapter two and verse 10, we read to us, God revealed and he's talking about spiritual truths. He has revealed spiritual truths to us through the spirit for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. Now, we referring to believers, we have received not the spirit of the world. But the spirit 
the Holy Spirit, who is from God. Why? That we might know the things freely given to us by God. And so, again, back to the text, Jesus is praising the father for revealing himself, making divine revelation a crucial first component in the penitent heart. Because, again, dear friends, no one has ever been saved apart from revelation, apart from God revealing to them who Jesus is. And that is central from beginning to end. Salvation is all a work of sovereign grace, a mercy determined solely upon the will and the delight of a sovereign God. But notice, secondly, to whom these spiritual truths are revealed. The end of verse 25, it says he didst reveal them to babes. And this, by implication, gives us the second indispensable element of genuine saving faith. And that is the element of reliance. In other words, when someone is dedicated and determined to be dependent solely upon the Lord Jesus Christ, where one's faith and trust and confidence rely solely upon saving grace. The word babes. And the original language can be translated infant. We all know what an infant is like. Certainly infants recognize their utter dependence upon their mothers. There is a reliance that is there, a reliance upon someone that is stronger, that is able to protect them and care for them and nurture them. So, too, are the spiritual babes that cry out for strength, for salvation, those that are utterly dependent upon something outside of themselves. And these are the ones to whom the Lord reveals himself. You see, salvation is only available to those who fully acknowledge their utter inability to save themselves. You will remember earlier in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, the Lord said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, poor in spirit, referring to those who utter, who realize that they are utterly bankrupt. They have absolutely nothing to contribute to their salvation. They're utterly helpless. They're like a beggar who is who is pleading with someone to give them a morsel of something to eat. And when that is the attitude of a heart, even like a child, an infant has that attitude with its mother. These are the ones that God comes to and reveals the indispensable truth of the reality of the gospel. Those who renounce their own perceived merit and choose and choose instead to rely solely upon God's grace. You see, our reliance is on Christ alone. It cannot be on ourselves. It's for this reason that the Lord has said God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to whom? To the humble. By the way, there is a mystery here that is beyond our understanding. It's fascinating to watch God disclose himself to those who he chooses. Like the glorious light of the Shekinah, that pillar of fire that led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. You will recall that it was utter darkness to the Egyptians. They couldn't see it, but it was light to God's covenant people. So, too, God conceals truth. From those whose hearts are calloused in unbelief and rebellion. When we get to Matthew 13, we'll elaborate on this more. But may I just remind you that in that particular text, Jesus began speaking to the multitudes in parables. And he he veils the truth 
of who he really is and the truth of the gospel from the wicked, but clarifies it through those parables to those who love him. And you might say, well, why would he do that? Well, there's really two reasons. There's two reasons why God will choose to reveal himself to some and conceal himself to others. First of all, it is an act of judgment against those whom he knows is refusing him in their heart. Those he knows who simply reject him in rebellion and thus he judicially seals them in their unbelief by concealing further truth to him. But, dear friends, it is also an act of mercy in that they had already rejected him in the light of full disclosure. And any further exposure to the light of the truth would only bring increased condemnation upon them, as we studied last week. But, dear friends, the glorious news is this. The transforming light of the gospel will beam with full force upon those who rely upon Jesus as Savior, who, who rely upon Him only as their Savior, as a babe depends upon its mother for, fear, for physical life. I watch my grandbabies light up at the sound of mommy and the sight of mommy and even, yea, the smell of mommy. They know it all, don't they? You can be holding them and they'll be doing okay and all of a sudden they'll see mommy and you'll see a whole different attitude be manifested upon their little faces. Why? Because she is the primary object of their faith and their love right now. They know that they cannot survive without her. And dear friends, what a glorious delight it is to watch some poor sinner suddenly gain the same insight in the spiritual realm. When they suddenly see by the power of regeneration that their only source of life spiritually is in Christ. And they cry out to the Lord and they long to be nourished by the Savior, they begin to say, as the psalmist did, nearness to God is my only good. And they be also will say in their heart that as the deer pants after the water brook, so my soul pants after you. What a joy it is when one suddenly sees the Lord as Isaiah did. Remember when Isaiah saw the Lord face to face and he was in the presence of the Almighty what a joy to watch people be suddenly just bewildered and amazed at the glory and the holiness of God. And then as they stand in the presence of his glory, as they are awed with a holy fear, all they can do is the same thing that Isaiah did. They confess their sin and the miraculous music of forgiveness begins to drown out all the noise of the earth. Nothing else in life matters. And then the sinner stands before God with a quivering heart. And they're caught up in the cleansing flames of forgiveness and their soul breaks forth in a doxology and they praise God for the salvation that is theirs. That's what it means to rely solely upon Christ as Savior. And then they will exclaim, even as Mary did, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Dear friends, may I ask you for a moment, when was the last time you reflected upon the day of your salvation? When was the last time you thought about that time when God revealed himself to you? And when you understood suddenly that your reliance had to be solely upon him and not upon yourself or your church or your denomination or your family background or some tradition? When was the last time suddenly your heart broke forth in praise as Charles Wesley's did in his great song, 
And you would sing all for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. But you can't stop there and you go on and you sing. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. You see, that is the song of the redeemed. Those who rely solely upon Christ for the most important reality in their life, and that is to know that their eternity is fixed in heaven because now they have been reconciled to God through Christ. Beloved, never lose the joy of sins forgiven. Never lose the wonder of it all, for there is no greater gift you will ever be given. Give your testimony often and give it to your children. Well, the penitent heart requires not only divine revelation and utter reliance upon saving grace, but thirdly, it requires repentance. Notice in verses 28 through 30, the Lord says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Here, dear friends, we have an invitation from the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who are recipients of his revelation, those who rely solely upon the merits of Christ as Savior, will repent of their sins. They will come to Jesus in saving faith. And he will become the new Lord and master of their life. It was themselves and now it becomes the Lord Jesus. Jesus made this clear in John 6, 37, where we read all that the father gives me, the Lord says, shall what? Shall come to me. All that the father has given me is going to come to me. And he goes on to say, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Dear friends, please know that only penitent sinners ever come to Christ. Only those who are weary of their own sin, their own burden of sin, only those who recognize that by the regenerating grace and the revelation that God has given them. The word weary here in this text gives us the idea in the original language of being burdened down. Here it is used figuratively to denote one who, who is exhausted to the point of despair from the relentless pursuit of somehow trying to earn their salvation. You see, the Jews were exhausted by trying to live up to the, the Mosaic law. They were burdened with all of that. They were trying to live up to this and they still felt the weight of their own sinfulness. But they were also weighted down by the ridiculous additions to the law that the Pharisees and the scribes had given to them. In fact, Jesus blasted the religious leaders in Luke 11, verse 46. And he says, you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Dear friends, please understand this. When there is no spiritual reality in the heart of an individual, legalism offers the illusion of righteousness that's why so many people love to flock to whatever rules that somebody will come up with. And certainly they had many of them in that day. One, for example, had to do with 
what they could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. I've given you many of these before. I'll give you another one today just so that you get the idea. And so you can understand the context of of why what Jesus is saying here is so important to the people. The Sabbath day, of course, was the seventh day and they would the people worked all six days of the week. And now all of a sudden it's time for Sabbath for Shabbat, as the Jews call it. And it was interesting that the Pharisees had added more burdens to the already stringent rules and regulations from the Mosaic law. And one of the things that they said is that it is forbidden to carry a burden on the Sabbath. You are not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to carry anything with your right hand or your left hand. You can't carry anything on your chest or on your shoulder. The only way you can carry anything is on the back of your hand. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And it was okay also to carry something on your foot or in your mouth or tied to your ear or tied to your hair or with your elbow. Or you could carry something inside your sandal. That would be permitted. But to violate these things is a very unholy thing. You see, this was absurdity. The types of rules that they had were oppressive. All it is is religious externalism, self-righteous works that, by the way, foster pride, because there's the assumption that when you do, when you obey these rules, now you're really spiritual. By the way, we need to guard against this today. We have many non-biblical preferences that very often are elevated to the status of divine mandates. We see that even in some of our contemporary Christian circles and in our fundamentalist circles. You have this regarding styles of clothing and, oh my, what, length of hair and sacred versus secular instruments. I mean, there's some instruments that you can't have, you know, in a church. And uh, rules regarding tithing and 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 activities that you can do on Sundays and certain Bible translations that you're only allowed to use. Dear friends, these things are not only divisive and oppressive, but they are also an assault against divine grace and the freedom that we have in Christ. By the way, some of these rules of ancient days are still in effect in Israel. I may have told you that if you go to Israel today. You will go to certain buildings that have elevators and they have two elevators. They have what's called the Shabbat elevators and then they've got the elevators for people that are non-Jews. And the Shabbat elevators are ones that stop at every floor, no matter whether you're going uh, ascending or descending. And the reason why they do that is because it is against the law to start a fire on the Sabbath day. And if you were to push the little button in the elevator, it would cause a spark and you would violate God's law. So you can't do that, but you still have to go up the elevator. So the way they get around that is you go into the elevator and it's going to stop at every floor. By the way, you learn real quick. Don't get on the Shabbat elevator because you will never get to the 12th floor. But isn't that silly? But you see, friends, Jesus understanding Just the deception of the human heart comes along to these these dear sinners and comes along to all of us and says to them, "I, I want you to come to me. I want you to come to me in repentance. I want you to come to me in humility and in faith. 
all you who are weary and heavy laden. By the way, the word weary here denotes internal fatigue from trying to please God. It's like a mental heart exhaustion of always trying to trying to somehow please this oppressive God. And the word heavy laden denotes something external. It denotes an external exhaustion, a desperation from the burden of actually trying to obey the rules themselves. By the way, the grammar here is very important. It indicates that the the people that are heavy laden here are those that have had a great burden dumped upon them sometime in the past. And it has now caused them to be wearied to the point of exhaustion. You see, friends, these people were under the oppressive yoke of rabbinical teachers, impossible standards and rules and regulations. And by implication, now Jesus is calling them to repent of their works, righteousness, religion. He's saying, I want you to lay down your unbearable burden of sin. I am going to take care of that for you. Come to me and I will give you rest. The word rest in the original language gives us the idea of of finding refreshment, of, of being revived, of being renewed, of being invigorated, of being rejuvenated. It is the absence of despair and bondage and oppression and fatigue. Dear friends, what great rest we have in salvation. No more trying to somehow earn your way into the kingdom. No more looking for the next system that you've got to somehow obey in hopes that somehow that will obligate God and get you in. No more worrying in the middle of the night that somehow your righteousness will not be enough so that you'll make the cut. What rest there is in salvation. Instead, in Christ, we have peace and we have joy and the hope of heaven where we will have an eternal rest. And so he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Dear friends, this leads us to the fourth crucial component of genuine saving faith. And that is what I would call resignation, resignation. In other words, submission, surrender. A willingness to resign yourself to loving and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, again, in summary, no one is truly saved apart from, first of all, divine revelation, the truth of the gospel. No one is saved unless there is reliance in their heart upon Christ alone as Savior. No one is saved apart from repentance from sin. And finally, There must be a resignation, a total yielding of the heart and the mind and the will to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That's why when people say, oh, I'm a Christian, but I watch their lives and there's absolutely nothing in their life that would indicate they're serving the Lord. I know that they're not saved. The scripture makes that very clear. So we humble ourselves before his sovereign rule. We lovingly submit. To his scepter, we do it willingly, we do it with great joy because he is our savior, our king. And he says here that we are to take his yoke upon us. 
Here, the word yoke is a metaphor for submission. By the way, you all know what a yoke is, even though we don't see them necessarily a lot in our day. But it was a a way of harnessing an ox or or a horse to control that animal so that it would it would be able to pull whatever load the master had for them. Likewise, we are to take the yoke of the master upon us to resign ourselves willfully and joyfully to obey our master for unlike All false religions where you must relentlessly work your way into heaven. The penitent heart gladly comes to Jesus and learns from him and submits to him. For he is, as he says, gentle and humble in heart. And in him there is rest for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Friends, might I remind you, this is very important. We must all be yoked to Christ if we are indeed in him. Nowhere in the Bible do we see that we are to be yoke-less. Nowhere in the Bible do we see that we are allowed to somehow wander around and do our own thing without a master. You know, I remember the song, There is Joy in Serving Jesus. We used to sing it a lot when I was a child. And I'm reminded of... 1 John 5, 3, where the Spirit tells us this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Now catch this. And His commandments are not burdensome. If I can make this real practical, you know what? It is not burdensome for me to obey the Lord and to love my wife as Christ loved the church. That's not an onerous, unfair type of a command. In fact, there is great blessing that comes from being yoked to the Savior in such a way. It is not burdensome for me to learn to guard my heart, to starve my lusts, to control my temper, to discipline myself for the purpose of godliness. And the list goes on and on in Scripture. It is not burdensome for me and oppressive for me to somehow discover and develop my spiritual gifts within the context of the church. It is not Onerous for me to bring up my children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. It is not unfair and weighty and cumbersome and burdensome for me to develop a prayer life and to share my faith with other people and to meditate and to study upon the study the word and to rightly divide the word of God and so on and so forth. Dear friends, there's great blessing when we serve the master. In such ways. In fact, John MacArthur has said it so well. I wanted to share this quote. Here's what he says. Submission to Jesus Christ brings the greatest liberation a person can experience. Actually, the only true liberation he can experience because only through Christ is he freed to become what God created him to be. End quote. What about you? Have you responded to the revealed will of God? Do you rely solely upon Christ as Savior? Have you repented of your sins? Do you now hate them and want to walk in a different direction? And by God's grace, you see that happening more and more. And have you resigned yourself willingly and joyfully to be obedient to his will? Your friends, may I challenge you to examine your heart. Because if these elements are not there, 
Yours is not a penitent heart. One that feels the profound remorse for sin and longs for forgiveness and hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Well, I trust you can echo the following heartfelt words that I would share with you that summarize this morning's text. Gentle Savior, meek and lowly, yet exalted high and holy, what rest I find in Thee alone, for Thou hast all my sin atoned. To You my weary soul didst flee, oppressed with sin's futility. My heavy burden You didst bear and gave to me a crown to wear. What rest I've found in Thee, O Christ, what love, what selfless sacrifice. Your yoke is easy, your load is light. In your commands my soul delights. What joy dost cause my heart to sing. Eternal hallelujahs to my King. To know that when my life is o'er, eternal rest I have in store. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the glorious truths of your word. Use them to mold us more into the conformity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, for those who sit in the sound of my voice, whose hearts continue to rebel against you, who really want nothing to do with you as Lord of their life. Lord, I pray because I love them and because you love them. That you will make them miserable until they bow their knee to Christ as Savior and experience the miracle of the new birth. Lord, I pray that You will reveal Yourself to them, that they will rely solely upon You as Savior, that they will repent of Your sin, and Lord, that they will resign themselves to joyfully yoking themselves to You as Savior and as Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cbctn.org or call 615-746-0113.